people used to always die at home. It was a profoundly spiritual experience that families witnessed. In the medicalization of the dying process, we've completely removed that awareness from lay people. And the, the problem is that our medical system is a secular system. So people wind up in these situations where they're overwhelmed, don't know what to do, and then they're spiritually stranded. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Catherine Butler. Catherine is a trauma and critical care surgeon who served on the faculty of Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. She's written numerous times for Christianity Today and the Gospel Coalition, and she's the author of Between Life and Death, a gospel-centered guide to end-of-life medical care. In our conversation today, Catherine and I discuss the things that she learned during her decade working in an ICU. She also discusses common misconceptions about CPR, ventilators, and other forms of intensive care medicine, as well as practical steps that everyone should take for making sure their wishes and the wishes of their loved ones are honored at the end of life. Let's get started. Catherine, thank you for joining us on the Crossway Podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Matt. It's really good to be here. You spent about 10 years working in an ICU, and part of that time you were, you were a trauma surgeon. What exactly happens in an ICU, and how does that relate to other sections of a hospital, maybe like the ER? So an ER is where you come initially to receive treatment acutely, and patients who come into the ER will range from people who I'm not kidding, have a rash, something very benign, up until uh, people who are very deathly ill. And the ER is the place where we initially stabilize patients, and then we transfer them to other wards throughout the hospital to receive treatment. The intensive care unit is where the sickest patients in the hospital go. Uh, It's where we can provide one-to-one nursing. It's where we can use uh, technology that is sufficiently sophisticated that you need to have a nurse with you at all times, uh, monitoring it, and we will check on patients every hour uh, versus on the other areas of the hospital. It'll be every four to six hours. You'll have a nurse take vital signs. In the ICU, it's around the clock. Uh, And it gives us the capacity to provide the most intensive care possible. So in my own practice, um, I was a surgical intensivist. So the people that I would care for would be either people who had finished some kind of operation that was very, very significance and had a uh, potential for complications afterwards that were severe and they needed to be monitored, or people who had had complications from something that was surgical that could range, run the gamut from they'd had an operation and then developed a life-threatening infection, or they had a heart attack after a surgery, um, or the other avenue would be patients who come in after trauma, after motor vehicle accidents where they're dealing with multiple organ damage. So it's, it's the sickest patients in the hospital. And we have wonderful success stories from that avenue of patients who are deathly ill, whom we're able to usher back to health. But it's also a place of great sadness because with how aggressive we tend to be as a whole in our treatment of people uh, beyond the point where we should, if, you, if I were to tell you honestly, um, we see a, we have a lot of situations where people are on multiple um, 
tiers of supports, ventilators, dialysis continuously, medications to keep the blood pressure up and the heart going, uh, very aggressive interventions at the end of life, which creates a very murky and upsetting situation for a lot of patients and their families. Mm, yeah. Most of us probably can't even imagine what that kind of context is like and the pressures that you must feel as a physician in there. What was it like when you first started to work in the ICU? I assume uh, as you were training. Describe what that experience was like. If you go back to medical school, I was intimidated at first, which is partly why I then d developed a love mm. for it. <laughs> because I, um, I was intimidated because there's so many things that you have to pay attention to. You know, it's, you're used to thinking about medicine as a, maybe a handful of problems per patient, but in intensive care, things are so complex that you have to literally go by system. So <laughs> every day when you're thinking about a patient's plan, you think about neuro neurologically what's going on and then what's going on cardiovascularly and just go down every single organ system. And as a medical student, uh, that was very intimidating. So I threw myself into study of it because I wanted to be able to help these patients as best I could. And then I fell in love with it because I just realized what a gift it was for much of this uh, when used properly to help people through some harrowing situations. You know, and I can my book talks mostly about the downsides of this technology, but there are plenty of success stories, too. And maybe that's fodder for another book um, about how we should be thankful to the Lord for what he's given yeah. us with medicine. Um, you know, so it's, it, it's just, uh, it's difficult and emotionally trying. Yes. But the opportunity to partner with patients and their families at their most vulnerable and to help usher them through. And then later in my practice, after I found Christ to pray for them and sometimes with them was just a privilege. That is, again, one of those contexts that few of us, I think, can imagine. And echoing what you just said, you write that ICUs tend to blur the boundary between the heroic and the inhumane. Mm -hmm. what, do you, yeah. what do you mean by that? Oh, goodness. So it's, it's an insidious process. You know, when we think about this technology, I find that people will often take a very black and white approach, and they'll either say, I want everything done under all circumstances, meaning everything, meaning chest compressions, CPR, ventilators, everything. Or they will say, I don't want anything done. God will take me when, you know, he's ready to take me. And those kinds of decisions, unfortunately, uh, are too concrete for what actually happens. You know, these, these, this technology can be life-saving and life-affirming when it's used under situations where we can re reverse something that's making someone so sick. Um, on the other hand, if what is making someone sick and debilitated is a chronic terminal illness that is worsening, that the technology we use can actually only prolong someone's death. And so to give you an example, if someone comes in and they've got a pneumonia and they're otherwise healthy, but they have a severe raging pneumonia, a ventilator in that circumstance will be potentially life-saving because you put them on the ventilator to, to support their breathing, you give them antibiotics for a treatment that, for a, a condition that's curable, and it's anticipated they'll recover and go home. If someone comes in with respiratory failure, but it's from disseminated cancer and emphysema and multiple other issues at play, 
that ventilator might not actually save their lives because what is underlying that respiratory failure is something that's not curable. And in those kinds of situations, we can give all of these um, interventions that are very aggressive and they're, they're worth it if you can help someone to recover and go home. But if that's not possible, we steal away time that they could be spending with their loved ones. We cause incredible discomfort. It's very uncomfortable to be on a ventilator. You have to have a tube down your vocal cords. That's very irritating. So you have to be sedated. So you can't communicate with anyone. Um, people have described to me that it feels like they're suffer they're suffocating, and they'll say, "I never want to have that again." You know, it's it, they these interventions do cause suffering. And so knowing that there's that potential, we need to be good stewards of this technology, and ensure that we're using it to help and we're not inflicting further suffering with it. Speak to CPR too. I mean, I think we mm-hmm. all have a perception of what that looks like from TV and movies and we yeah. probably we probably all understand to some extent that that's not probably it's true not to life. not how it looks. No. <laughs> what are some of the the common misconceptions that you've found that people have about CPR? Oh, like well, you know, think about what do the sitcoms and the the shows usually portray? <laughs> It's usually people running in with paddles and they give a shock and the patient sits up and everything is good, right? Mm. That is very rarely the case. There are a handful of cases when someone who receives CPR uh, will immediately recuperate. Um, that's usually if it's a specific type of arrhythmia, meaning the, the rhythm of the heart, the way the heart is beating and it's synchronizing its chambers. Uh a specific type of arrhythmia that you can reverse right away. I've had one patient who sat up and was confused, <laughs> but the vast majority, if you're, if you are sick enough to need uh, CPR, uh, there are a lot of negative things that you need to consider. If you have, are someone who is healthy and has few medical issues that are chronic, CPR makes sense. Um, the whole idea, and I should backtrack, of CPR, what it does is it essentially buys you time. Uh, it, it stands for cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And basically, you're compressing the heart between the chest, the sternum, and the um, spine to try to pump blood to the head and so that you can perfuse the brain and try to deliver oxygen to the brain. Uh, and so it's meant to try to continue to give oxygen to the brain while the everybody in the team taking care of you tries to figure out what's going on and to reverse whatever caused you to have a cardiac arrest in the first place. So it's not, it's something to help uh, while they figure out what's going on. It's not something that when they do it, you'll come back to life. And there are downsides to it. The survival after CPR is actually quite low. Um, And additionally, to do CPR properly, you break ribs. I remember the very first time I did it as a medical student, I felt absolutely sick to my stomach and felt like I had assaulted this poor elderly woman whom I'd never met before. Uh, but they called a code and I ran into the room with everybody else and I started doing compressions and I felt that crack beneath my palms. And I, I thought I was going to pass out. I felt wow. like I was committing assault on her. And that's what you have to do. And it's worth it if you can bring a patient back. If you can save someone, if what they have is reversible, if it's not. So if uh, someone is already dealing with disseminated cancer or 
end-stage heart failure, chronic heart failure, or some kind of very debilitating disease that's long-term, that's not curable, and then has an event like this, the chances that you're actually going to uh, restore them back to their original health are very low because while you're performing CPR, it is not perfect. The brain is not getting enough uh, oxygen as it would need. And the longer that time passes, you actually suffer brain injury. So the chances that someone is going to recuperate from CPR if they're horribly sick and debilitated to begin with is actually pretty low. And these kinds of conversations really need to be had um, carefully with a physician who knows you well so that he or she can shepherd you toward the right decision. Because the, you know, the majority of sitcoms and television shows will show that someone has uh, an arrest and they receive CPR and next thing you see it is the next day they're going home. <laughs> and, and they've actually, there was a couple studies done looking at the rate of um, recovery from CPR as portrayed on TV. And I can't recall the actual statistic I wrote in my book, but it was something it was something ridiculous, like 80 percent when the reality is more like 10 percent mm, uh, wow. actually recuperates after CPR. And it depends upon the medical background and what we're talking about here. But overall, it's about 10 percent. So it's not so, as it's not as foolproof as we often seem. to. No, think it no, it's it's not. It can. It is necessary if someone has uh, a cardiac arrest. And when, when I say cardiac arrest, what I mean is any kind of condition that prevents blood flowing from the heart throughout the body. So it could be that the heart stops. It could be that there's a massive clot in the arteries leaving the heart that's blocking blood flow. There are a whole host of things that can cause it. And the cause determines whether or not you recover after you have CPR versus if it's something that's going to be futile. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that's another another way that we are are misled and our understanding of things can be so far removed from the truth is because what we know is is from the media and it really doesn't align very closely with reality. In your book, you reflect on the the disconnect that you sometimes felt trying to explain all the technical details and the medical terms to patients and their families uh, while at the same time feeling like a lot of the questions that they had, the deeper questions, the spiritual questions that they had related to the end of life were things that you just couldn't answer or weren't being answered for them. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate yeah. on that, that disconnect that you felt? Oh, absolutely. I came to Christ during my training. Um, so, you know, for the first half of my experience in medicine, I wasn't really even cognizant or aware of what people were struggling with. Uh, and I went into ICU care because honestly, I thought it was the most fantastic way to help people because uh, people are in the throes of some of the most traumatic instances of their lives and they're scared and they're terribly sick. And the technology we have really is a blessing because in many circumstances, it does allow us to return people home to their families. Um, but there is also a dark side to it. Oftentimes the treatments or the support we can offer doesn't actually cure patients. It only prolongs death. Uh, it can be very painful. It can deprive them from a voice uh, during those last moments when they should be focusing on, you know, the whole trajectory of their lives and thinking about their relationship with God and with their families and kind of, you know, the old idea of putting your life in order at the end. Um, we've, we've deprived people of that in the setting 
of the ICU because the technology is sophisticated, but in not all instances is it curative. And what I would find, I'd have these meetings with families on a weekly basis, several times a week sometimes, where they were trying to vouch for loved ones and make heart-wrenching decisions that were just so anguishing because they were grieving over the potential loss of a loved one and then strapped with these what-do-I-do type scenarios. And, you know, Matt, as I think is appropriate, which we all do when we're in a dilemma and a crisis like this, they would turn to their faith, which I think is absolutely what we should do. But the landscape that they're dealing with, with all the technology and the the foreignness of it and the vocabulary even that they don't understand makes it so hard without help to try to navigate these things in a faithful, God-centered way. Uh, And people were just struggling. They would cling to one idea from the Bible, um, but in a very concrete black and white fashion and ignore other ideas. And it would just add a new layer of agony to what was already such a difficult and trying process uh, that my heart just broke for these families that I was trying to help through um, these terrible situations. Mm. So are you kind of saying that all of the, the medical technology and, and insights that we have that were kind of designed to help prolong life can sometimes actually get in the way and make, make it harder for patients and families to actually think about what's happening? When you think about the history of the dying process in America over the span of centuries, you know, people used to always die at home. It was a profoundly spiritual experience that families witnessed, and it was supported by your clergy and within a community. Um, in the medicalization of the dying process, we've completely removed that awareness from lay people, and you can see it in the statistics. You know, so. Um, about 86% of people a decade ago, I mean, I'm sorry, a century ago, um, died at home. And Mm. current surveys show that that's actually what most people still want. 70% of people in America, according to recent surveys, have said they want to be at home in the place that they love, with the people they love, and what has been dear to them in life uh, when they pass away. But only a quarter of us actually do. Wow. The majority are in ICUs. And it's become so sophisticated and so complicated that, you know, a terrified loved one will come to a family member's bedside and they can't tell whether or not somebody who's on a ventilator and receiving medications and is on dialysis is recovering or is on the brink of dying. That's something that the physician needs to help them navigate to explain what the numbers mean, to explain the disease process. And it's really hard for a family member who's part of the laity to make the, to decipher uh, those differences between is my loved one getting better or not? You can't tell from the doorway. And so, you know, so families are left to rely upon their physicians. And the, the problem is that our medical system is a secular system. And there have actually been studies out of Harvard looking at the responses that physicians have to terminally ill patients when they voice spiritual concerns. And the vast majority of physicians drop the question and don't follow through on it and don't even refer necessarily to chaplaincy because they're that uncomfortable dealing with it. Mm. So people 
wind up in these situations where they're overwhelmed, don't know what to do, and then they're spiritually stranded. Uh, and it, it's very, very yeah. difficult. Why do you think it is that that um, doctors have such a hard time broaching those topics? Mm, that's a great question. I'm actually reading an incredible book right now uh, called Hostility to Hospitality that looks at this. It's written by um, a husband and wife team, Michael and Tracy Balboni, and they actually did outcomes research showing this divide in America between spirituality and medicine. And it's, it's multifaceted. You know, I think... Um, and I just wrote an article about this for TGC, but we're so used to thinking of healing as being a, a blessing and something that mirrors uh, our faith because we're laying on hands, we're caring for one another, we're showing mercy. Those are all beautiful things that point to God. But the history of modern Western medicine, the bioethics on which we we lay our uh, groundwork for how we practice medicine is secular. It comes out of the Enlightenment. You know, and so the roots of medicine are far removed from Christianity. The other thing is that there, because there's so much emphasis on uh, science within medicine, because there's so much emphasis now on technology and cure, there is just not much of a culture of considering spirituality. Um, it's just as in you know, modern day secular circles will assume that there's a divide between science and religion, that you can't uh, have faith and also consider science, that there's this divide between the two, that, that mentality permeates medicine. And so you'll have physicians who are very deeply compassionate, but who feel very uncomfortable touching upon any spiritual concerns that patients might have. It's part of the training. It's part of the whole culture. And in addition to that, it seems like while there might be uh, a, a lack of conversation about some of these spiritual things between patient and doctor, there's also, as you note in your book, sometimes a lot of confusion and disagreement uh, between loved ones and doctors and patients. Mm -hmm. and speak to that a little bit. Yeah, and th this becomes so hard because the thing that really is the most honoring to do when you have someone who's so critically ill, uh, we tend to lay on our own opinions and or what we want, you know, when you have someone who's dying that you're grieving for, the last thing you want to say is, okay, let's, you know, withdraw these treatments. You want to keep pressing on. And those kinds of, uh, that background, you know, the messiness that follows us through our lives and our relationships can uh, infiltrate these kinds of decisions is what we really should be aiming to do for a loved one who's nearing the end of life is trying to be his or her voice when they can no longer speak. And that happens very frequently in ICU care. Uh, when they've done research looking at people at the end of life, the majority cannot make decisions for themselves, either because they're on a ventilator and they can't speak, or very frequently because the illness themselves disables them to the point where they are very confused or they can't talk. And so the, the role then, the burden then turns to, becomes on the loved ones to be that person's voice and to vouch for what uh, he or she would say and would want if they, she, he or she still had the capacity to speak. But, you know, there's so much that's involved in terms of family members who might not have had a good relationship with the loved one in question, who now are feeling guilty. Um, others who have a misunderstanding of what it means to 
continue on with regressive care or to set limitations. There's a tremendous amount of, of confusion mm. that can arise in these situations that are already so emotionally charged. Mm. Yeah, and whether it's CPR or a ventilator like we talked about, you mentioned the need for discussing these things with mm-hmm. our doctors and with our family beforehand, and that kind of gets into the territory of you know, the importance of advanced directives and other things like that. Can you speak to what is an advanced directive and why is it important? An advanced directive is a document that is meant to record your wishes for aggressive uh, life-sustaining treatment. And it's kind of an umbrella term. Um, There are orders, people who have been around hospitals will hear people talk about uh, DNR, DNI orders, um, which basically allows you to say via a checkbox format saying, I want CPR or I don't want CPR, I want a ventilator or I don't want a ventilator. The thing that I think is more important for people to consider if you're going to consider one of these documents, which I recommend you do, is a living will because it actually allows you to write a narrative of what your values are and what you would accept under what circumstances. But the whole idea of filling out an advanced directive is is vitally important because, as I mentioned earlier, the majority of us at the end of life will not be able to voice our wishes. And you know, the, the sad thing is that most of us don't want to consider these forms or fill them out because we're like, well, I don't know what I would choose. I'll just decide when it happens. And most of us, unfortunately, can't. And it has significant ramifications on those that are then left to make those decisions for us if we leave them in the dark. Um, family members of loved ones who pass away in the ICU have significant rates of depression afterwards. Ha- they suffer from complicated grief. Many of them even meet criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and so we, when we don't think about these things ahead of time, there are ramifications not only for us in terms of our spiritual walk as we consider what is acceptable, what is not, what do I need to continue to serve God to the end of my days, but also it potentially hurts those we love because we strap them with making decisions for us that is just an impossible burden without guidance. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, we have a lot of pastors who listen to the podcast, and what advice would you give to them? They're, they're ones who are often walking alongside their people at the end of life, and they're getting mm-hmm. lots of questions, and especially mm-hmm. if doctors and family members don't always know how to navigate these waters, I think many people look to pastors to help them. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to a pastor listening? One thing, and this is just based upon my experience of how I've seen loved ones and patients respond, um, I, I would first of all recommend the pastor should also feel at liberty to talk to physicians caring uh, for those in their congregation as long as they're given permission, you know, if that will help. Because sometimes these things are so murky uh, that it helps to have an understanding of uh, one key thing, which is when we're having these discussions, are we talking about measures that promise to prolong life? or to prolong death. And that is a hard distinction to make when you're not familiar with what is going on medically with an individual. And, you know, and what I mean by that is, is would a ventilator in a certain situation be curative? Or 
would it be something that would only prolong uh, the dying process and be a futile treatment? And I think that is a really important question to entertain um, because people often are just so overwhelmed. They will cling to one particular principle or another from scripture to the exclusion of all others and feel like oftentimes that they don't want their loved one to suffer, but they don't know if they can refuse treatments, if that's acceptable, if that's biblical or not, you know, and they're often seeking guidance from someone uh, who knows the Lord and can help them interpret these things to say, this is okay, <laughs> you know, or you need to press on. So I think, first of all, it's pastors should feel empowered to, if they have questions medically, that would help them understand that. You know, even if it's just that, would these things prolong life or would they preserve life or would they prolong death? You know, and I think uh, also then understanding that a lot of family members, as I mentioned, are often clinging to one principle. Um, we Christians have a track record that has been documented in the medical literature of pursuing aggressive treatment beyond the point of hope. And I, I think very often it's because we cling to the idea that life is sacred and so we need to do everything possible to keep someone alive. And that is true that our lives are a gift from God and we're to be stewards of it and to protect it and our time is in his hands. However, he, that doesn't mandate, and the Bible nowhere mandates, so that means chasing after aggressive interventions that will guarantee undue suffering and prolong death, but don't offer hope for cure. And I think very often people suffering don't grasp that unless it's pointed out to them, you know, and, and feel very tremendously guilty about mm. any idea of um, declining treatment because they feel like they can't, you know, and without realizing that all of us, death comes to all of us. And when we very stalwartly cling to this idea that we have to pursue every treatment at all costs, in a way we're actually denying God's sovereignty and we're not trusting in him that, you know, he is sovereign over our lives and our death and that our hope is in someone who is much greater than the ICU room and the ventilators, but who has conquered death. And so even when we have to face it, and even when it will come, because it will come, we have our hope in Christ. You know, and, and I, th I think those are the kinds of things that I feel loved mm -hmm. ones need to be shepherded toward, shepherded toward, to understand that it's not necessarily God honoring to chase after futile treatments. And that we're meant to be merciful and loving to those around us. Um, and also that, you know, God is in control and that we have a hope that so far surpasses any of the technology that we can agonize over in these moments. Catherine, thank you so much for speaking with us today and sharing from your experiences as a physician and your experiences walking people to the end of life. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on for this. That was Catherine Butler discussing medical care and the end of life. For more, be sure to check out her book with Crossway, Between Life and Death, a gospel-centered guide to end-of-life medical care. Available online or at your local Christian bookstore.
For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.